Church family, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34 in your copy of God's Word. That is our text for today. We're looking at this chapter. The title of our message is Protecting the Purity of God's People. Protecting the Purity of God's People. Genesis chapter 34. I'm going to read God's Word. Enjoy God's Word. And let's read, listen with a desire to learn, to grow, to be changed. That means listening, reading, coming to God's Word with a, what the Bible calls a humble and contrite heart that trembles at the Word of God. And so that's how we want to come before God's Word today. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take our daughters, uh, your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only let this condition, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the word and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. 
The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, open up our hearts to receive your word with humility. Teach us, mold us into your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God's word, church, tells us the true story of humanity. It tells us the true story of our, of our, of our, our race, the, the race of humanity. In the beginning, God made a perfect world with perfect humans. It was a world that was completely free from the stain of sin. We could put it this way. It was perfectly pure. Everything about the world that God made was perfectly pure. But, you know, through the serpent's temptation, the first human chose to rebel against God. And in that moment, God's good world became stained with sin. Impurity replaced purity in God's good world. And we see examples of this impurity all throughout the pages of Scripture. We see examples of this impurity all throughout human history. Uh, since the writing of Scripture, uh, the time of the Bible, we see examples of this impurity all around us today. We see examples of this impurity in our own hearts, if we're humble enough to see it. But God's people are to pursue not impurity, but we are to pursue purity. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, God doesn't call us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we would continue to walk in the darkness, producing works of darkness. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Christians that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Church, God did not crucify our old self so that we would keep walking in the ways and habits of our old self. Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That means to set her apart from the world, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she, talking about the people of God, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Church, God did not send his son to die for the cleansing and washing and purifying of our sins so that we would then return to the impurities from which he cleansed us. I believe that what we have before us in this um, interesting passage in Genesis chapter 34 is a word of warning to God's people of the impurity that we are to avoid, but also a word about our inability to be pure apart from God's plan of rescue. We could put it this way. Genesis 34 church teaches us this, that God's warnings against impurity should drive us to God's plan for making us pure. God's warnings against impurity should drive us to God's plan for making us pure. 
The context for our passage today is simply this. Jacob has returned to the land of Canaan with his family. His family now consists of 11 sons, his wives, his 11 sons, at least one daughter whose name is Dina. At the end of chapter 32, excuse me, 33, told us that there was a man named Hamor who had sons. Uh, the name of one of the sons was Shechem. So Jacob comes to the city of Shechem. He purchased land there in this place and he begins to settle down. He pitched his tents there. He kind of sets up camp, sets up house and begins to settle down. But even though God had brought Jacob safely, peacefully, as Genesis 33 told us, back into the land of Canaan, Jacob wasn't finished facing the hardships and difficulties that we see even here in chapter 34, and we'll continue to see his family face in the coming chapters. I've said this before. Sometimes we might wonder, I don't know, sometimes you may wonder this. Why in the world does God give us certain passages of Scripture? I find myself asking that a lot as we've been studying through Genesis chapter 34. God, why do we have this one? Why is this here? Why did you give us this one to, to read and think about and 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 What are we supposed to learn from a passage like this? Church, I think it's always important that we consider the original audience into which this to which this passage was written. Yes, God, in his sovereignty and being timeless, had this passage written down um, his word to us today. But it had an original audience. Moses was the one who first wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he wrote those uh, two and four. The people of Israel, the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt. They were exiting Egypt where God had rescued them and they were making their way to the promised land. And guess what? The promised land was this land. It was the land of Canaan. Now, it was about 400 years later, but but it was the same land that they were going back into to, to live in. And it was during this time as they're making their way from Egypt to the promised land that God was giving them his law, which revealed to them his expectations for how they were to live, his rules for what it would look like for this people whom he had rescued uh, from bondage to live as a community of people with God as their one true God. God giving them this story here in Genesis 34 um, that happened about 400 years earlier would have served to reinforce his laws regarding his standard of purity when it came to sexual ethics. And it also would have served to warn them against the dangers of, that stem from the consequences that come from a lack of purity in their lives, disregarding his design. But it also, again, would have done something else. It would have also served to highlight God's graciousness in preserving his people as they fell into impurity, as they faced impurity. God's graciousness is on display as these Israelites looked back at their forefathers and saw how their failure to respond well to impurity was actually met by the grace and mercy of God in their lives. In other words, I think that God wanted his people to have this passage in order to protect their purity as they learn from bad examples that we see here in Genesis 34. And there are plenty of bad examples in Genesis chapter 34 and to further reveal their need for God to make them pure 
as the impurity of the human heart is put on display here in this passage. I want to share with you four truths today, church, from Genesis 34 that I pray will protect our purity. I think that's why God has given us this passage. It's a reminder and it's it's an act of grace and love that he would give us this to, to protect the purity of his people. Truth number one, church, is this. Sexual impurity deceives us by promising pleasure, but producing destruction. Sexual impurity deceives us by promising pleasure, but producing destruction. This passage begins by telling us that Jacob's daughter, Dinah, who came from Jacob's first wife, whom he didn't love, Leah, remember that dynamic there, Leah's daughter, Dinah, that she went out to see the women of the land. Now, we don't want to speculate too much here, but it is possible that this is something she should not have done. Verse 1 could be an indication that she was hanging out with people she should not have been hanging out with. The women of the land were Canaanites. They didn't worship the one true God. And as we see in a moment, God's people were to live with a proper separation from the world around them. So this could actually be here a warning to make sure we are not putting ourselves in situations and among people where impurity is lurking around the corner. But it is hard to tell from this one verse if, if Dinah made the wrong choice or didn't make the wrong choice here. Um, and so we don't want to speculate too much. What is clear, what is very clear from this passage is that Shechem's actions in verse 2 were absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. And they're absolutely an example of how God's people are not to act. Verse 2. And when Shechem saw, excuse me, when Shechem the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, there's debate as far as what exactly what exactly the sexual sin was that occurred here. But it's not debated that sexual sin has occurred. This word, depending on your translation, you may have the word that he saw and then he seized her. It literally means he took her. So it could be more of a, a, a somewhat of a gentle taking, meaning that it was a consensual act between the two. Remember, maybe she wasn't supposed to go out. Maybe she was kind of snooping around with people she wouldn't sh- shouldn't have been snooping around with and hanging out with. And it could have been somewhat of a consensual act. But but the word that is translated literally took it can also and many times it means to take by force and hence the translation seized. But I want you to know here. Either way, and I want to mention that, not to just add unnecessary detail, but to highlight two different sexual sins. We, We may not know exactly which one occurred, but they're both sins. But our society really only likes to call one. It's not going to call it a sin in our society because that is going to bring God into the equation. But our society looks down more on one than the other. But I just want to see that they're both sins in God's eyes. Either way, impurity was committed. Sin was committed because the text tells us that he, that Dinah, Dinah was. I'm going to say that both ways today. I'm just so sorry. For, I can't just stick with one. I don't know why my mind just can't pick one and go with it. OK, so I apologize for that. Uh, Dina, Dinah, I'm talking about the same girl. The, the, the text tells us that she was humiliated. And three times in this passage, we're told that Shechem defiled her. And verse seven tells us that what had been done was an outrageous thing in Israel and that such a thing must not be done. And I just want you to see that whether it's consensual or not, it's still sin. Because 
If it was consensual, it was a case of premarital sex, which violates God's sexual ethic found in creation, where a man and a woman are joined together in marriage. And then Genesis chapter two tells us the two who have left father and mother and hold fast to one another in marriage become one flesh. Or and I do tend to think that this is what happened here. This is a case of rape. I do think it means to take by force. I think that's what has happened here. And if that's so, then obviously it also is a violation of God's sexual ethic, which is grounded in his standard of treating people as humans made in his image rather than objects to be used for our selfish pleasure. But I really want you to notice here what the text highlights, and it is the progression that this sin took. Notice that Shechem saw her, took her, lay with her and humiliated her. Notice the progression again. He saw, he took, he sinned against her, he committed that act, and the result was shame. The result was humiliation. Church, this is the progression that temptation and sin always takes in our lives. Sin starts with us being tempted with pleasure. Listen, nobody runs after sin because it looks like it's going to hurt them or destroy them or bring shame or destruction into their lives. Why are we tempted with sin? Why? It, what entices us? It's because it promises some sort of pleasure. It looks good. And in Shechem's case, Dinah looked sexually pleasing to him. His look became a look of lust. And then he took. He looked and then he took. He seized upon that which he thought would bring him pleasure. And then he acted. He committed the act. He lay with her, though she was not his wife. And the immediate result was shame entered into the picture. And in this case, it was shame for Dinah. And we read ahead in the story. We see that the consequences didn't stop there because this passage ends up being a passage of complete and utter destruction and slaughter, an overturning of an entire city. The physical destruction of Shechem and all the men of Shechem. And this is the story of sin from the very first sin in the Bible. This same progression happened in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what happened there? These same words are used. Listen to Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. In other words, they were ashamed so what that means that they all of a sudden their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. They were ashamed in that moment. Humiliation rushed in to their lives and into their relationship. So Eve saw, she took, she ate, and the result was shame and ultimately destruction, right? God has to curse the world, curse them because of that sin. Shechem saw, took, Lay with and the result was shame and destruction. We go fast forward all the way to the New Testament. James is writing to the New Testament church and he put it this way. He said, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, please heed this warning. Sexual impurity deceives us by promising pleasure, but providing destruction. It is a false promise. We live in a society that has thrown off all moral groundings when it comes to human sexuality. According to our society, you can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, whenever you want to sleep with them. 
According to our society, you can chase after sexual pleasure with people other than your spouse. You can do that in person. You can do that on a screen. You can just do that in your mind. It doesn't matter. You just go do it. And it may lead to pleasure in the short run. A temporary short, uh, uh, a temporary uh, uh, type of pleasure, but it's short lived and the end is always some sort of destruction. But the same is true for any sin, church. We see the sin that's highlighted in this passage, but the same is true for any sin. It could be anger and bitterness leading to the destruction of relationships. It could be overeating or drugs or alcohol abuse leading to the destruction of your body or perhaps even the destruction of those around you as your actions put those people in danger. It could be greed that leads to the destruction of your job and career if the greed leads to you stealing, or to the destruction of your family if the greed leads to extra hours and extra hours and extra hours and no time for nurturing your family at home. It could be gossip that leads to the destruction of someone's reputation or the destruction of trust between people or the destruction of relationships. Or it could be any other sin or impurity. You just name it. You fill in the blank. It all takes the same progression. It all leads to the same place. It leads to destruction and death. Brothers and sisters, when we see the opportunity for sexual pleasure outside God's boundary of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, we must see it for what it really is. The world's not going to see it for what it really is, but as God's people, we must see it for what it really is. We must see it as an impurity that is abhorrent in the eyes of God. See it as a thing that, what does the verse 7 say? Must not be done among God's people. See it as a defilement of the people that God has made pure and is making pure by none other than the blood of His Son. See it as a deception of pleasure that ultimately provides for us Nothing short of destruction. Yes, see it. But yes, see it and run away. Run away. Run away. Now, unfortunately, what we often do instead of running away is we make excuses for our impurity. Truth number two, church, is this. Neither attraction nor affection are valid excuses for sexual impurity. Neither attraction nor affection are valid excuses for sexual impurity. A feeling of love, a feeling of love seems to be the only thing needed in our society to validate any sort of sexual involvement. Just a feeling of love. As long as I feel in this moment love towards this person, then I can do whatever it is with him or her that I want to do. But church, a feeling of love is not the boundary that God gives us in his word. Marriage is the boundary. Verse 3 tells us that Shechem was drawn to Dinah, that he loved her. He spoke tenderly to her. In verse 8, we're told that the soul of Shechem longed for Dinah. In verse 18, we learn that Shechem delighted in Dinah. It will be easy to make an excuse and say, but at least he loved her, right? I mean, he loved her so much. How come he can't engage with her sexually? As long as you're in love, you can, you can be sexually active as, as much as you want, right? I mean, that's the standard, right? Well, maybe for our our world, but not for God's people. Church, neither attraction nor affection are valid excuses for sexual impurity. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how in love you are. God's word is the standard. Not your feelings towards someone. 
brothers and sisters, it's a warning to not let our feelings dictate our actions. Not just when it comes to sexual purity, but in, even in other areas of life. We don't let our feelings dictate our actions. But instead, what we do is we filter our feelings through what is true. And what is true is what we find in God's word. We say, I feel this way, but let me see what God's word says. And let me filter out any sin that would lead from these feelings. Let me filter it out through God's word. Let me act not on my feelings, but act in accordance with what God's word says. This is called self-control. It's a part of the fruit of the spirit. That means it's a part of what God's people produce in their lives when when his spirit is at work in us and and is producing Christ likeness in us. It's self-control. And it helps protect the purity of God's people. Now, I want you to notice a third truth here, and that's this church. Pursuing purity requires a proper separation from the world. Pursuing purity requires a proper separation from the world. I mentioned this briefly a few minutes ago, but now we kind of dive into this part of the text. Not only was it wrong for Shechem to have sexual relations with a woman he was not married to, it was also an abomination for God's covenant people to then be joined with people who did not belong to God's people. And this gets highlighted in the response of the brothers. So what's Shechem's What's what's his proposal? Well, he demands that his father get him Dinah as his wife. Hamar, uh, Hamar, then the, the, the father of Shechem, he proposes a deal with Jacob and with Dinah's brothers, the sons of Jacob. He says, you know what? Hey, this has happened. But why don't we just go ahead and start intermarrying with one another? Why don't your people and my people, why don't we just come together and we just become one people? But this presented a problem and the problem Hear this carefully. The problem was not marriage between people of different ethnicities or different family backgrounds or different skin colors or different accents or languages. That's not the problem here. When we think about the, the, the warning in the Old Testament against intermarrying, it has nothing to do with any of those things. We could, we could, I could give you examples of that in God's word. It has nothing to do with that. The problem here is marriage between people who differed in their relationship to God. That's the problem. The problem was God's chosen people who belonged to his covenant, marrying people who did not belong to God's covenant. Remember what we said at the beginning, the original audience, the first readers of this text were the Israelites, and they were getting ready to enter back into the land of Canaan, which was filled with people who rejected the one true God. They worshiped all sorts of false gods. And one of God's main instructions to the Israelites when they were going to enter back into enter into the promised land was don't intermarry with the Canaanites. And again, it had nothing to do with God saying, I don't like their ethnicity. I don't like their family background. I don't like their skin color. I don't like the language they speak with. So don't intermarry. That has nothing to do with it. It had everything to do with God's people not joining themselves in the covenant of marriage to people who were outside of God's covenant and who would then draw their hearts away from the one true God, which when the Israelites got into the land and they disobeyed God, that's exactly what happened. They ended up being drawn away from worshiping the one true God to worshiping the false gods of the people that they were told not to intermarry with. So this account of the fathers of the tribes of Israel being faced with this proposition of intermarrying with the Canaanites would no doubt have served as a warning to the Israelites who were getting ready to enter Canaan 400 years later. And we're going to face the very same temptations. You say, well, the men of the city agreed to circumcision, which was the sign of God's covenant people. So then they could have intermarried, right? Like they were going to become God's people. No, no. 
in this instant, in this instance, their agreement to be circumcised was a lot like the man who agrees to go with his girlfriend to church, even though he is completely lost in sin with no interest in worshiping the one true God. His only motivation is to be with the girl. He has no no desire to have a relationship with the Lord. In the same way, Shechem and his men are not interested at all in worshiping Jacob's God. All they want to do is marry their daughter, marry his daughters. That's their only desire. They have no interest in having a relationship with the Lord. That the act of circumcision, uh, circumcision for them was just a way to, to form a business transaction, basically, so that they could marry these daughters of Jacob. To join with them in marriage, for Jacob's sons to join with them in marriage would have been a violation of God's standard of purity because it would be joining them to the world rather than to God. Church, pursuing purity requires a healthy separation from the world. Now, that does not mean, please don't hear what I'm not saying here. That does not mean that we completely disengage from God's word. This is not a call to become hermits or monks. Jesus called us to live in the world, to engage with the world. But there is this healthy level of separation from the world that must exist among God's people, where we are not joining ourselves to the ways of the world as we live in the world. It's what it means to be salt and light in our world. We live in the darkness of our world, but we don't look like darkness. We look like light in our world. Obviously, one very practical application of this is that if you are a believer, you should not marry an unbeliever. It just it shouldn't this shouldn't even be a, a, an option for you. Now, if you're a believer and you find yourself married to an unbeliever, there's a whole that's a whole nother conversation. OK, and there's actually scripture that talks about that. But if you're not married and maybe you want to be one day, there's there's a there's one hard line that you can draw. Doesn't matter how good the other person looks, doesn't matter how much money the other person has, doesn't matter what their personality is or who their family is. If that other person is not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can just go ahead and put them on the no side. Okay? You put an X by their name. That's obviously one application here, but that's not the only way that we can be tempted to attach ourselves to the world. Could be trying to fit in with a popular crowd by lowering our commitment to God's word. It could be watching what the world watches, listening to what the world listens to, filling our minds with what the world fills its mind with. All those impurities. Church, let's heed this warning and let's let's be active and look for areas of our lives. I mean, let's be proactive in this. Every one of us as God's people. Let, let's look and examine our hearts. Ask God to expose any way in us where we may be attaching ourselves to the ways of the world. Where maybe there's not this healthy separation from the ways of the world, but the lines are getting a little mixed and we're starting to kind of walk in those ways in our lives. We need to examine our hearts daily and say, Lord, is there any any wayward way in me? Now, our last warning comes from looking at the responses to the impurity in this passage. And, and this is a warning that then should drive us to God's plan of rescue. Church, truth number four is this. Our plans for handling impurity prove our need for God to accomplish his plan. Our plans for handling impurity prove our need for God to accomplish his plan. Let me put that another way. When we try to handle the impurity in our own strength, in our own plans, it doesn't work. All it does is prove that we need God to do what he has promised to do. 
That's the only hope for us. It's the only hope for impure people. So the sin with Dinah has been committed. Now, the question is, what's everybody going to do, right? What's everybody going to do in this passage? Well, let's start with Jacob. If they kind of all get mixed up, it's not really linear as we go through. So just start with Jacob, okay? Jacob doesn't seem to really have a plan. His first reaction is to wait till his sons return from the field. Then his lack of any pushback to the offer from Hamor makes him appear willing that, to just go along with the offer. I mean, it almost, almost seems like Jacob's ready just to go along with it. It doesn't seem that there's any pushback. Doesn't seem like there's any righteous anger on his part. Never does he appear outraged that this evil has been committed to his daughter. Could stem back to the fact that she's the daughter from the woman that he doesn't love. I don't know. That could be some ongoing consequences from that whole part of the family situation. But he just doesn't seem like he has much of a plan. We could say that Jacob responds to impurity with passivity. He has a passive plan in the face of impurity. But now we want to consider Hamor and Shechem's plan. What's their plan? Well, they seem to respond to sin with a business proposal. That's their sin. It's just a, it's a business proposal. There's never any expression of guilt or repentance from Shechem for what he has done. All he's concerned about is getting Dinah as his wife. He and his father basically respond to this impurity with trying to strike a business deal. And even when they present the deal to the men of their city, they really present it deceitfully. They never mention the fact that all of this has been sparked by Shechem's immoral choice and is being driven by his love life. They, they never they never mention that part of the story. In fact, they, they even say these people, hey, 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 people of our city, these people over here, Jacob and his his folks, that they actually they're, they're peaceful with us. They're actually not peaceful right now. All those brothers are mad as fire at Shechem. So he leaves out the, the, the negative part of this. What's going down here? And he just kind of presents this. And says, hey, this is going to be a good deal for us. But what's his motivation? He, selfishness. He's super self-centered. We could say that Hamor and Shechem respond with a self-centered plan in the face of impurity. And then there's the plan of Jacob's sons. The text tells us that they acted deceitfully from the start. They counter-offer the proposal of Hamor and Shechem. They say, all right, here we go. Here's our counter-offer. We'll go along with your plan. We'll intermarry with your people. But you have to be circumcised. That's the sign of our covenant with our God. I don't know if they mentioned all of that, but they just basically said, you've got to be circumcised. Now, at face value, this seems like a right move. It seems like they are taking seriously God's command to them that all the males who are in their people and belong to God have to be circumcised. Like, hey, they're taking God seriously here. But we were already told up front that they're acting deceitfully. They, they have a completely different plan in all of this. And we see that plan play out. Three days after the men of Shechem are circumcised, they are very sore. Simeon and Levi attacked. The text tells us that that the men were basically incapacitated. They couldn't fight back. And so only it took two brothers walked in there and they slaughtered not just Shechem and his son, but all the men of that city. Basically, they were all sitting ducks, unable to defend their city. It would be like attacking a hospital with the patients in the bed. That's what it was like. Now, there is a sense in which the anger of the brothers is justified. A sin has been committed. We ought to be angry against sin. God is angry against sin. There is a sense in which sin, defilement, should anger us. But but where Jacob responded with passivity, his son swung the pendulum completely as far as they could in the opposite direction. 
They didn't just kill Shechem. They killed his father. They didn't just kill him and his father. They killed all the men of the city, plundered the city, took the women, took the children, took the goods. All the brothers join in on it. We can say that Jacob's sons respond with a cruel plan, even going so far as to use God's covenant sign, not as a means of teaching others to worship the one true God, but as a means for deception and a revengeful slaughter of the whole city. What's the point? I I like what one writer said. It's really simple, but I think it's great. A great kind of summary of this passage in it. And it gets us heading in the direction that I believe this passage needs to leave us heading towards. One writer said this. He said, there are no heroes in this episode. There are no heroes in this episode. Not only do we see an act of impurity here at the beginning, we see everyone in this passage respond to impurity inappropriately. Everyone responds to impurity with more, we could say this way, impurity. That's what happens. Jacob responds with a passive plan. Hamor and Shechem respond with a self-centered plan. Jacob's sons respond with a cruel plan. But friends, God responds to our impurity with a rescue plan. Isn't that good news? God responds to our impurity with a rescue plan. In fact, when we get to chapter 35, which we're not going to look at today, but when we get to chapter 35, we see God's response and praise God. His response to all of this mess is that he keeps his word. (laughs) He just renews his promise that we know it's ultimately going to lead to the Messiah. Passive plan, self-centered plan, cruel plan, church, the way that we and of ourselves respond to impurity in our lives is just going to lead to more impurity. But praise God, he responds to our impurity with a rescue plan. And we know that rescue plan is God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, what if you have messed up? What if today God has convicted you of impurity in your heart and in your life? Whether everybody knows about it or a few people know about it or nobody knows about it. What do you do with it? What's your plan going to be? Are you going to try to handle it on your own? What if you fall and pray to temptation? What do you do? You try to beat it on your own. What if today you're guilty of impurity? Do you try to you try to appease God on your own? What if you've responded to impurity with more impurity? Are you just going to add to that list with more? I want you to know that God has a rescue plan. He has a plan that washes us clean from every single one of our impurities, no matter how big or small we may think those impurities may be, no matter how short we've been engaged, short of a time we've been engaged in those impurities or how long those impurities have dominated and ruled our lives. God has a plan to wash us clean from every single one of them. And it looks like Jesus coming and taking our punishment upon himself, the punishment that we deserve because of our impurity in light of a holy God. We deserve to be punished. But Jesus came and he takes on God's wrath on the cross in our place. The pure and holy one becomes impure for us by taking on our sin so that everyone who believes in him, who repents of sin, who trusts in the work of Christ alone for salvation is giving given this free gift of salvation is washed clean and is no longer standing in condemnation before a holy God. And because Jesus then rose up from the grave, everyone who trusts in Christ gets this gift of everlasting life that we're going to get to live in the presence of a holy God 
though we have committed all sorts of impurities, we're going to get to live in his presence forever and ever and ever, enjoying him because of what Christ has done. If we place our faith and trust in him. Listen to these beautiful words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They're words of warning against impurity coupled with words of hope because of God's rescue plan. I want you to listen to this. Hear the warning, but let the warning drive you to God's plan of rescue. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Paul writes. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor Men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. And the list could just keep going on. He just stops there. Will inherit the kingdom of God. He says none of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. I I look at a verse like that and I go, well, I'm doomed. I'm in that I'm in that list right there. There's there's several of those things that I'm guilty of. But he doesn't stop there. He says he's writing to Christians, he's writing to the church and he says this. And such were, were, were some of you and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Listen, church, God's warnings against impurity should drive us to God's plan for making us uh, making us pure. Don't walk out of here thinking God is mad at you and has done nothing to help you and you're on your own to clean up your act. Yeah, God hates sin. He hates sin. The Bible goes so far to say that he hates the one who commits the sin. And yet the Bible also says he loves that person so much that he is willing to send his son. He has sent his son to redeem you from your sin. That's God's plan. Will you accept it? Will you receive it? Will you trust in it? If you've never trusted in Christ today, it is the only answer for you to be able to stand before God, having committed all sorts of impurities, to be able to stand before God and have him accept you and see you as clean in his sight. So will you trust in Christ today if you never have? Will you call on him? Will you say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I know that it is an offense to you and I deserve your eternal punishment. But God, thank you that you sent Jesus. And I trust that what he did on the cross was enough to wash me clean from every one of my sins. God, please save me. Because of what Jesus has done. And church, if you trusted in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, are we walking in purity or are we walking in impurity? God has rescued us from it. He's washed us clean. So our lives should look like that. We're not to go back to the impurities that God has saved us from. And if you find that you have today, what do you do? Well, you run to the cross too. You run to the cross too. God's word says that if if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we all need to run to the cross, church. Every single one of us, some of you, maybe for the very first time to trust in Jesus for salvation, some of you 
to go back and say, God, you've saved me. I have not been living like a child of God ought to live. I've been attaching myself to the world. I've been being deceived by the promise of pleasure of sin. I've been making excuses for my sin, validating my impurity. But God, today, you, by your Holy Spirit, are driving me back to your plan of rescue. And God, I want to live there. I want to live at the cross. And I want to look like a child of yours who has been purified from all impurities. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Would you do what only you can do? Convict our hearts. Put a godly sorrow in our hearts for our sin that then leads to repentance from sin, that leads to trust in Jesus, rest in the, the, the cleansing of our sin, the full and complete payment for our sin on the cross, and then, and then walks in that light, walks in that holiness, in that purity, in that cleansing from sin, so we don't look like the world around us. God, not so that we can snub our nose at the world, but so that we can shine brightly the light of Jesus for them so that they too can see that they are sinners and there is a Savior who can save them as well. God, protect the purity of your people today. Help us to fight against sin, not with our strength, but with your strength in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.